Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn with me to John chapter 7, where we spent time last week. We looked at the whole chapter of John in the context of the Feast of Booths and the back and forth of all the divided opinion about Jesus that's swirling around this time in his ministry. And uh, today we're going to zoom in on just a few verses, verses 37 through 39. It's something that Jesus said in his interaction with the Jews there in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. Every worldview can be summed up or or outlined in terms of four acts, like a story. You have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And everybody in the world has a worldview. They have a set of deeply held beliefs and convictions about those things. Where do we come from? How do we get here? That's the creation part of the story. And the fall part of everybody's story is what is wrong in the world? What's gone wrong with the world? The redemption part is who or what are you trusting to make it right? And restoration is what is the world going to be like when everything is set right or if it ever gets set right? Everybody has a worldview, a set of beliefs like that. Maybe you heard about this back in February. Congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she introduced what they call the Green New Deal. And uh, it is a plan, quote, to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions and create economic prosperity for all. So combining two things, uh, the environment and economics into one massive plan, quite literally, to save the world. That's what it is. It's a a plan to save the world. Not not so much a plan as it is a wish or, as I read through the resolution, uh, a prayer crying out to government as one's God, fix the world. Uh, We trust you. Fix the world. And it has goals like guaranteeing a job with medical leave and paid vacations and retirement for all people in the United States. That'd be great, right? (laughs) The government guaranteed everyone a job like that. Providing all people in the United States with health care and housing. There you go. Government will provide all of your housing. It calls for upgrading or rebuilding all existing buildings in the United States to achieve maximum energy efficiency, every existing building, and to secure for all the people of the United States for generations to come, here it is, clean air and water, healthy food, access to nature, a sustainable environment to promote justice and equity by stopping current and preventing future and repairing historic oppression. It's a massive sweeping plan, Uh, and it's a worldview. It's a belief about what's wrong in the world and what's going to set it right and what the world will be like when it's all fixed. And we see the same thing in the campaign slogan from President Trump from 2016, Make America Great Again. It's communicating a a worldview. That slogan resonates with tons of people in our country, obviously, who won the election. It also outrages others. And the difference in reaction is all about your worldview. What, What do you think is wrong with America? And what do you think would make the country great again? So God's word is not silent about these worldview issues. How do we get here? What went wrong? What's the hope of redemption? And what is the world going to be made like? What's it going to be like when everything is made right? God speaks about this to his people, and he does so in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah, through Isaiah, God himself says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then Revelation 21.5, 
declaration. John says that he hears he who is seated on the throne saying, Behold, I make all things new. I am making all things new. That's what God is doing. So, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, her plan to renew the world, the redemption part of it, involves upgrading or replacing every building, uh, replacing combustion engines and air travel with high-speed rails and electric cars, uh, planting lots of trees, reducing the number of cows by reducing how much meat we eat because cows are bad for the environment. So that's the plan for how the world will be made right. So what's your vision for the world? What's your understanding of where history is going? what God is doing, how God is making things new again. Most importantly, what does Scripture say about these things? I want to give our attention to John chapter 7. What is God's plan and how is he carrying it out in history? And what difference does it make for your life? So give your attention with me to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. This is God's word. It's clear. It's absolutely necessary for our spiritual lives. It is authoritative and it's sufficient for life and godliness. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you in prayer after we read your word, because we need you. We need you to illuminate our minds and our hearts. We need you to give us understanding And we are asking, oh God, that by your mercy and grace and through the person, the power, the presence of your Holy Spirit, that your word would move among us, not just in mere human words, not just with sound waves, but by power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction so that you would accomplish in us what you purpose to do and what you hold out to us, what you offer to us through your word. Do this for your namesake, and do this for our joy, and do this for the good of this city that we love, in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to unpack this short text by answering, asking and answering a series of questions. And I want to start broadly and then work down towards specifics, and the, the first question I want to start with is this. According to God's word, how will the world be changed? God is the God who makes all things new, how will he do that? How does he do that? Look at John 7, 37 through 38, where Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, if you've been around for this sermon series at all, then uh, you're probably familiar with this, or if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, this would sound familiar to you. You think back to John chapter 4, Caleb actually read this during our time of worship this morning, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, when Jesus offered her living water that would well up to eternal life. However, there's an important distinction between John 4 and John 7. There's, there's a crucial, I think, development here. In John 4, the focus was on individual thirst 
being satisfied. There, Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Whoever drinks will not thirst. There's thirst-quenching living water that Jesus offers to individuals. And in John 7, individuals are invited. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So individuals are invited, but the result that Jesus promises that he talks about here is way bigger. It's way broader than personal, individual soul satisfaction. That's definitely present. But the result that Jesus promises is nothing less than the redemption, the transformation of the world that Scripture foretells, that the prophets talked about. And here's, here's where I get that. Here's why, why I see that in this text. First, Jesus promises that those who come to him and drink, out of their inner being will flow rivers of living water. He says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water, as the scriptures have said. Now, rivers of living water flowing out from your inner person obviously imply soul satisfaction, thirst quenching. Absolutely. And so much more than that, as the scripture has said. So, the interesting thing here is that there's no verse in the Old Testament that matches word for word what Jesus says here about out of one's heart flowing rivers of living water, which means Jesus is referring to a concept that is present throughout all of the prophets in the Old Testament. And he's kind of taking that concept, bringing it all together, and then pointing to a unique and surprising fulfillment of that in himself. Scripture does speak of rivers of life, living water. We see it in Ezekiel 47 where Ezekiel describes a vision in which an angel brings him to the new temple and out from under the threshold of that temple is flowing a river and it starts, Ezekiel said, as a trickle and the angel has a measuring stick and so they go along measuring this river and it starts out just ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then it's waist deep and then Ezekiel says the river was so deep and so wide and raging so strongly that it could not be crossed and it flows out from the temple. Listen to what Ezekiel says, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. So everything will live where the river goes. And on the banks of this river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So the picture is the temple of God, and out from it, a river flowing, and everywhere it goes, everything lives and everything flourishes, and the leaves of the trees growing along the banks are for healing. Okay, that, that's Ezekiel 47. Zechariah 14, 8 says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Not, like Jesus says in John 7, out of one's heart, but out of Jerusalem. The picture is out of the city where God's presence is manifested to his people. There's a river of living water flowing out. Listen to Revelation 22, John's vision. And listen to, it's the same vision Ezekiel had. John says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So there's a connection between this river of life 
and the healing of the nations, or the transformation of the world, the setting right of all that's wrong in the world. So when Jesus talks about rivers of living water, what he's talking about is, is not less than individuals having their soul thirst quenched, but it's more than that. It's, it's on a massive scale, this happening more and more all over the world. The river of life is one of Scripture's metaphors for God's work, His global work of redemption. Because Scripture speaks oftentimes of the fallen condition of the world in terms of barrenness, wilderness, desert wastelands, death, heat, and of God's restoration as living water that makes things live in the desert where everything died. So this river flows out from the presence of God to the nations. It's for the world. It's for the world, and it produces life and healing and transformation everywhere it goes. That's how the world has changed. The, the, the world is renewed by this river of life. That's one reason I say that what Jesus is talking about here is big and broad. The other reason I say that Jesus is talking about the restoration of the world and not just individual satisfaction is because Jesus makes this declaration at the end of the Feast of Booths. John draws our attention to the timing and says, on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. What's this feast all about? Well, the, the context infuses his words with a significance that we could miss if we don't understand what the Feast of Booths is. It, it was a celebratory festival, one of several that God prescribed to his people uh, through Moses. And he, God gave them various feasts to observe throughout the year. The Feast of Booths was one of those, and it celebrated the manifestation of God's goodness and his provision for his people. It was a celebration that gave thanks to God for the harvest. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering. They would gather the harvest, they would come together in Jerusalem, and they would worship God and thank Him and celebrate that He had been so good in giving rain for their land, and they would thank God for this provision through the harvest. But it also looked even further back, not just to the most recent harvest, but all the way back to the time when the Israelites were in the desert, and God provided for them there water from a rock in the desert. We know that because in um, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, when God gives his people instructions for this feast, he tells them, during this week, when you come to Jerusalem, build these little booths, little tabernacles, and camp out in those during this whole time of celebration so that you remember how I led your forefathers through the desert. That was one of the explicit purposes of this feast, to remember how God had provided water out of a rock in the wilderness. So that's on their minds during this celebration. And the feast was about looking ahead, hopefully and humbly trusting God for future provision. Zechariah 14, 16, the prophet describes a time when not just Israel, but the nations, the nations outside of Israel are going to celebrate the Feast of Booths with the Israelites. And he says all the nations of the earth would go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And verse 17, if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So there's this expectation of God's reign on the land to provide and meet needs. The Feast of Booths looked back with thankfulness. It looked ahead in expectation and dependency on God. And it looked forward to the Messianic age. 
the day when all of the prophecies about the outpouring of the Spirit of God would be fulfilled on the earth. Just as God had given his people water from the rock in the desert, they had this expectation that God was going to pour out his spirit like water from heaven because of prophecies like Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour water on the thirsty land. This is the language God uses when he speaks about the outpouring of his spirit. Water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and what happens as a result? The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. This is the language of Eden, the fruitfulness of Eden, and that's how God describes His transformation of the world. It's going to happen when He pours out His Spirit like water, which causes deserts to become incredibly fruitful fields through the outpouring of his spirit. That was the expectation. And all of that, okay, keep, keep all of that in mind. Remembering water from the rock in the desert, celebrating the most recent harvest, which is evidence of God's provision through the rain, trusting God for rain next year, and longing for the day when he pours out his spirit on his people. That's the context of the Feast of Booths. And all of that was dramatically enacted through a water ceremony that took place every day of the Feast of Booths. In the morning, the high priest would get up and he would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would fill this golden pitcher. And all of the worshipers would stand there and observe, singing and chanting. They would sing from Psalms 113 through 118 as he would carry that water back up to the temple and then he would pour it out before God along with the wine of the daily drink offering. And all of the worshipers are remembering God gave our fathers water in the wilderness. God is going to pour out His Spirit. All of that is happening day after day. And on the last day, they didn't pour the water out. And Jesus stands up in the middle of the crowd. You imagine, just imagine the scene. Everybody's there. Everybody's attention is somewhere else. And Jesus stands up and yells. So everyone is drawn to Him. And He says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. And drink. And as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's declaring everything you've been hoping for and longing for and we've been celebrating and remembering and expecting year after year after year in this festival, it's fulfilled in me. In me, water from the rock, that's me. Rain from heaven to provide for the land, that's me. The spirit poured out in the messianic age, that happens through me. The river of life for the healing of the nations. That's through me. I am all of that. Come to me. Believe in me. So, individual soul satisfaction in Jesus? Yes. And this is God's plan for making all things new. So how's the world going to be restored and transformed? The barren wastelands, the wilderness, the desert of humanity in rebellion against God is renewed and restored and revived when... The Spirit of God is poured out like a river from the presence of God. And that river of God's presence flows with life and healing. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who makes that happen. I'm the one who makes that happen. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 7 at the Feast of Booths. So here's the second question. When is the world going to begin to experience that? When is that going to happen? Look at verse 39. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given. Why not? Why had the Spirit not yet been given? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's a key time marker in this text that John is drawing our attention to. The glorification of Jesus. That is the decisive event that must happen in order for the Spirit of God to be poured out in this way on the deserts, turning the deserts into fruitful fields. The river of living water will flow after Jesus is glorified. And that's what makes Jesus' declaration here so massive. He's declaring that he himself is the beginning of the fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken. So when is this going to happen? It's it's not just that when you die, your spirit will float away to some ethereal, otherworldly dimension, and there will be a river there in that dimension. Jesus is saying that river of life that flows for healing of the nations, I am going to open that up. And I'm going to open it up by my glorification, by my life, my death, my resurrection, and my ascension. That is going to be what opens up this river of life that flows for the healing of the nations. That means the river of life is flowing now. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus' glorification through his death. He glorified the Father so that the Spirit of God could be poured out. Jesus identifies himself as the one who pours out the Spirit. Who he is, his person, is essential to the, the gift of the Spirit. He says, come to me, believe in me. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is essential to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Back in John chapter 1, 33, John the Baptist identified him, that was one of the key markers. He said, this is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, because God the Father had identified him as that one, the one who will baptize, pour out, flood the world with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one. Only God himself could give the Spirit. So Jesus' identity as God, one with the Father, is essential because who else can give the Spirit but the one who is God? The Spirit is the Spirit of God, and so God himself gives his own Spirit. But something else is necessary if God is going to pour out his own presence like water on the wasteland of this sinful world. Not just that God himself offers his Spirit. It was necessary for Jesus to glorify the Father by his death and resurrection so that God could remain righteous in pouring out his spirit and not his wrath on a sinful world. Jesus had to glorify the Father in this way so that we could receive this gift of the spirit and not just waste away in the wilderness of our sin. When John says the spirit had not yet been given, we know John doesn't mean the spirit of God didn't exist yet or the spirit of God was not yet active in the world. We know that's not true because John has already spoken of the spirit He said that John the Baptist saw the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. So John knows the Spirit of God is eternal. He is God. He has existed, and he's been present in the world. That's clear throughout Scripture. But what John means here, he means that the regenerating and life-giving work of the Spirit is absolutely connected to the sin-atoning death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, so that we can never separate Pentecost from Calvary. The outpouring of the Spirit cannot be separated from 
the work that Jesus did on the cross. Without his sin-canceling, wrath-absorbing death, there is no outpouring of the Spirit on humanity in this Pentecost kind of way. Do you know today is Pentecost Sunday? That's pretty awesome. That happened to be in our preaching plan that we would land on this text on Pentecost Sunday. The day in history when God poured out his Spirit on the earth broadly and widely and deep and like a raging river that's growing and growing and growing. The death of Jesus atones for your sins and makes it possible for God to pour out the living water of his spirit upon you. So when does this happen? When does the river of life begin flowing to the nations? Not some far off distant future date from right now. The river of life, which is the spirit, began flowing after Jesus' glorification. At Pentecost, Jesus poured out his spirit on the earth, which means this river of life is flowing for the healing of the nations now. But if it's happening now, here's the last question I want to ask. How is the river of life changing the world today? How's that happening? And here's where all of this intersects with with your life and with mine. Look again at verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, Jesus addresses thirsty people. And and those who thirst, what he means by thirst, he's talking about sinners. He's talking about idolaters. He's talking about sufferers who see their need for God. Remember we saw this back in John chapter 4 when he's having that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the the well about living water that would quench her soul thirst and he identifies for her that the evidence of her soul thirst is how she goes repeatedly to all of these different men and relationships with those men for satisfaction. We saw back then, I want to draw your attention again to Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 where the prophet says, my people have committed two evils. First, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's who God is, the fountain of living waters. And it is evil to forsake him and turn to anyone or anything else. And that's the second evil Jeremiah speaks of, that they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. This is the reason that the world is the way it is. That the, the fall part of our worldview, what's gone wrong with the world, what's the problem in the world, this is the fundamental problem that people forsake God, the fountain of living water, and attempt to satisfy their souls with anything and everything other than God, with idols. And all of those idols are just broken and empty and tyrannical and they never satisfy. Every other problem in society is a result of this sin against God. So even pollution, do do Christians care about the environment? We ought to, God made it. And he put humans on earth to be stewards of his world. But why do people abuse creation? Why do people pollute God's creation? You don't pollute the world unless you first rejected the God who made the world. It's a sin issue first, at the root. Name the problem in society, gun violence, poverty, corruption, whether it's in business or in government, sexual immorality, abortion. Whatever the problem is, at the root, it is this problem that 
humans have forsaken God and turned to broken and empty cisterns that hold no water. And Jesus is inviting thirsty people who live in the desert of the world to come to him and drink. That's what he's offering. Individuals come to Jesus and drink. So how do you drink? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me. This is what we see again and again and again in John. You catch this theme over and over. The invitation, come to me, is the invitation, believe in me. The invitation to eat my flesh and drink my blood is the invitation to believe in Jesus. The invitation to drink living water is the invitation to believe in him. To come to Jesus and drink is to believe in Jesus. Drinking is believing. Believing is drinking. That's how you drink this water, by believing in him. And I I don't want to assume that that's automatically obvious or clear to everyone what it means to believe in Jesus because it's so common, almost cliche, that it's easy to just take it for granted and, and skip over it. Believing in Jesus means turning your mind, your thoughts, the attention and affection of your heart consciously toward Jesus. That's how we today come to Jesus. We think about him. We give our attention to him. We do that by turning to his word. This is where he makes himself known. This is how we find out who he is and what he's like. So we give our mind's attention to him. We confess and forsake our idolatry. If our fundamental sin is turning to broken and empty cisterns, then coming to Jesus means turning away from those things. So whatever else it is that you have been trusting in to satisfy you, Turn away from that. Confess that and look to Jesus in prayer. And as you come to him, then you set your mind on the truth of what he says in his word. All that he said and all that he did and all that he promises. And and what we do is we, we think about that and we pray over that and we profess it even out loud with our mouths. Paul says in in Romans 10, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you hold on to that truth and affirm the truthfulness of who Jesus is and what he says and what he did, and then you rely on Jesus for your satisfaction and your security. Just ask yourself that question right now. What, What am I looking to? Whom or what am I looking to for security in life? For satisfaction in life? What am I trusting in? Is it Jesus? If not, just turn your heart's attention to him even in this moment. Jesus, I want you more than anything because you alone can satisfy. You are God and I trust you. And when you believe, Jesus says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. That is, his spirit will fill you and flow through you to the world. That's crazy. Jesus opens up the life-giving, world-changing flood of his spirit by his death and resurrection. And then the world is changed one person at a time as thirsty individuals hear the good news of Jesus, come to him in faith, and drink. And every time a thirsty person is satisfied by turning to Jesus... The Spirit of God fills that person and then flows out from that person to more people. So Jesus is saturating the world with his presence through his Spirit one person at a time. This is how he does it. This is how he changes the world. It's not outside 
within. It's not by some external force. It's not by some threat of punishment from outside. It's inside out. The Spirit of God changes your heart. He changes your affections. He changes your desire. He changes your inner person. That is all of your thoughts and all of your desires, your will, your emotions, your mind. And he does that in every individual who trusts in Jesus. Again, it's not top down. It's not like if we could just elect the right people and get them to pass the right laws and then punish all the bad people, that would change the world. What changes the world is individuals coming to faith in Jesus, hearing the gospel. And as individuals are changed, you know what happens? Families are changed. You know what happens when families are changed? Communities are changed. And when communities are changed, nations are changed. And it all happens as the Spirit of God flows out to the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the world, God's changing the world. And he's doing it through the preaching of the gospel. That's why we set our hope in Jesus and the gift of his Spirit. I just, this is a big deal. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 5, when, when Ezekiel's measuring the depth of the river that is growing gradually deeper and deeper and deeper, what's the point of that? Why is that recorded in Scripture for us? That's how the gospel advances in the world, gradually, deeper and deeper and deeper. And more and more people believe in Jesus. The river is growing deeper and wider, more and more force, saturating this community through all of you. You are the church. Ezekiel's vision of the temple and the river flowing out from it. John's vision of the temple, the river flowing out from it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And what does the New Testament say about the temple where God dwells? The church is the temple. The river flowing out with healing for the nations flows from the church. How does the river flow out from the church? The church proclaims the gospel to the world. This is such a big deal. You are the church. You are the temple from which the river of life flows with healing for the nations. That's, that's a game changer. You are the church and the river of life. Your thirst is quenched as you trust in Jesus, yes. And now this river is flowing out from you as God turns deserts into fruitful fields. That means, like Greg, that word he shared this morning, it means marriages that are like a, a waste place right now. God means to renew marriages and make them like a fruitful field through his spirit. That happens as Husband and wife, turn to Jesus. Drink from him. That means homes that are like a desert are being made into a fruitful field. That means this gives all kinds of meaning to just the daily life that you share with, with one another. Doug Wilson says, This water of life was not given to individuals so they could keep a thimbleful in their hearts. This is water that is meant to inundate the world. God is flooding the earth with the presence of his spirit through you. you. You bring and you offer water of life to everyone around you. That, that means moms, when you're parenting and you're having little mini gospel conversations while some discipline issue arises throughout the day, you're offering living water to your kids because when they turn to Jesus and they trust in Jesus, he pours out his spirit into their hearts and the river of living water grows on earth. It means, dads, when you lead your families in worship, when you pray with your wife, when you read the word with your kids, the river of the spirit is flowing through you 
And as they trust in Jesus, the river grows. This means when you're at work and you're having a conversation with coworkers and they're lamenting about the wasteland that they experience of sin in the world, you are offering living water. Rivers of living water flow out from your heart, satisfying you, yes. I think I probably said this back when I preached John 4, like put, you know, when you're on the plane and they tell you put on your own mask first and then help people next to you. First, your heart satisfied and this river flows out from you. I mean, just look around you. Look at the relationships around you. People are in a wilderness. I think one in six Americans take medication for anxiety, depression. That means just all, all that means is lots of people around you are in despair, worried, fearful, anxious, uncertain about the future. And the Spirit of God is living water. Is it still like you know, half of marriages in America don't make it? That means you've got people around you with struggling marriages. And you've got living water flowing out for you. Think of all the people around us who turn to alcohol and sexual immorality and all kinds of lesser things that cannot satisfy in hope that their hearts will be filled. And the church is the temple from which this river flows to the world. What a story to be part of. God is making all things new. And we get to be part of that. One thirsty person at a time turning to Jesus and drinking by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing on earth. You one day will make all things new, finally and fully. How oh, we long for that day. We long for that day when we just look at our own lives and we think about how our own thirst is so evident, our own fears and worries and anxieties, our own insecurities, our own idolatry. Oh God, we long to be free from sinning. But we thank you that not only is that day coming finally and fully, but it has begun definitively in Jesus through his death and resurrection and outpouring of the Spirit who regenerates hearts one person at a time. We pray, O oh God, that by your grace, by your mercy, by your good pleasure, that you would bring more and more people in this city to faith in Christ and use us. May we be faithful as your church, to speak about Jesus, to, to tell people about Jesus, to invite people to Jesus so that this river of living water would flow with power and force and renew those around us who are in desperate need of life. Oh God, get glory for yourself by pouring out your very presence and saturating the world until the earth is filled with the knowledge of your glory as deep as the waters of the ocean.